Hello, and welcome to Compass Church. If you have any questions about this message or are interested in learning more, please contact us. We'd love the opportunity to connect. Now, enjoy today's message. Through those encounters and through those discussions, immediately they've become, they've become adversaries. They have made plans to kill Jesus, get Him off of the scene. And so Jesus would be and could be uh, apprehensive or concerned about how he would interact with uh, another religious person on questions of spiritual life and faith. Because all of the other situations have not turned out well. And it's one of the things that I think should be encouraging for us in that Jesus seems to always have the same attitude and the same direction, the same posture towards the world, no matter how the world rejects him. He's not, he's not shaped by that rejection. He's not, uh, he's not defensive because of that rejection. He's not necessarily critical because of that rejection. He stands with love and grace and offering the gospel. And I think that's something instructive for us in a world where it is difficult, where sometimes people criticize Christianity, where sometimes we have been faulty in our ability to communicate the gospel to the world around us. And the, these relationships, these understandings between the world and people we run into and ourselves have gotten confused and uh, have been tainted we as followers of Jesus must not let those difficulties jade us or make us critical or make us pull back. Jesus demonstrated in His life He constantly pursued. He constantly demonstrated love. And that is one of the central uh, phrases in this passage that I think is so important. In verse 21, it starts with these couple of words, Jesus looked at him and loved him. And what we're going to find in this, illustrate, in this encounter between this rich young ruler and Jesus is that the rich young ruler doesn't necessarily respond in the way that he should. And he doesn't really follow the instructions that Jesus gives, the directions he gives. And Jesus points out some very fundamental flaws and some things that this man needs to do. But these words, he looked at him with love, must be, are the things that governed his interaction. And as we look at Jesus and we're learning how we engage with people around us who have questions about spiritual issues or who are trying to make sense of life, who are trying to understand God, one of the things that Jesus demonstrated in every one of those situations was that He had love for the people He interacted with. That's why He was called a friend of sinners and publicans. Because He loved people. And, and that is what we must do first. As we look at how Jesus interacted with the rich young ruler and how it instructs our interaction with people around us, we must realize that our first step, our, our stance, our position must be one of love. I think of the movie A Beautiful Mind with Elisa Nash, 
and uh, John Nash. John Nash was her husband. Uh, uh, it's a true true story. If you ever look at the movie or read about their situation, uh, John Nash was a great mathematician, a brilliant mind. Um, and then he got involved in some espionage things, and he began to make elaborate schemes about who was out to get him and who was doing what, and and it became apparent that he was a schizophrenic. And this was well after Alicia married uh, Mr. Nash. And he was a brilliant dude, but he was severely schizophrenic. And when that, was come, when that came to light, there was an, a question. How was she going to respond to her husband now? And one of her famous lines was, she says, I looked at him and I forced myself to see the man that I married. And he, and he becomes that for me. He's transformed into someone that I love. And I am transformed into someone who loves him. In other words, she looks at him with eyes of grace. We do that in instinctively, intuitively for people we love who have lost abilities. There have been folks in our church that have struggled with Alzheimer's and the interaction and understanding of their loved one, their partner, is greatly diminished. But they see behind the ravaged person. And they see the healthy person they once knew and loved. And they continue to love that person regardless of the situation they find themselves in. Jesus had an uncanny ability to look at everyone with eyes of love. Seeing beyond the, the present situation to what they could be. What they were made to be from the beginning. What they could become. This was eyes of grace. And one thing we must learn from looking at the interactions of Jesus with people in the New Testament and even interactions of Jesus with you and me, is that He looks at us with eyes of love, with hope of what we can become. Not necessarily what we are, but looks past those. Reminds me of what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 16, So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. And it's in the context of... of Paul talking about the gospel compelling us to preach or Christ compelling us to preach the good news and that Christ can take anyone and bring new life and make them a new creation. And that because of that, because Jesus changes everything, we're not going to look at them as they are, but look at them as they could be. We're not going to look at them through a worldly perspective. We're going to look at them through a gospel perspective. God's perspective. And so if we learn anything from 
looking at these encounters with Jesus and people who are questioning and, and trying to figure out who Jesus is and the way to follow God or just in brokenness and in need. And Jesus reaches out and touches them. In all of these experiences, we're talking about engaging with the world and making a representation of Christ through our lives and through our love and through our communication. The foundation of that must be our love for them. And that's one of the things we see in this encounter. There are a couple other lessons I want us to see. So let's read Mark chapter 10, verses 17 through 31. As Jesus started on his way, a man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You should not, shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, Who then can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and said, With man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Then Peter spoke up, We have left everything to follow you. Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me and the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age. Homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields, along with persecutions. And in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last first. Oh, there's a lot to think about in this passage. It is one of those that has kind of captured the attention of believers for a long time because there are so many different uh, surprising events. Um, And one of those surprising events is Uh, the first principle of engagement I would like to mention. That is, sharing the gospel is always about knowing God. Talking about the good news is always about knowing God. It seems like this young ruler 
approached Jesus and knelt before him and called him good, kind of in a sense of complimenting Jesus and and sparking up a a conversation. He kind of expected a corresponding reply back. But he was addressing Jesus as one good man to another good man. Jesus certainly was open to the conversation. He longed to have this conversation. But I think in his response that no one is good except God was kind of a shock. It surprised the rich young ruler. And I think he was in a way trying to rewind the conversation and started anew and afresh. Of course, we don't capture, uh, the scriptures don't capture every details not a script it's in a description of the encounter so this man came up and was complimentary and jesus received his gesture but didn't reciprocate in kind and went to the heart of the issue that don't call me good there is only one who is good and why would jesus say something like that there is a sense in which there was this pursuit of eternal life. That's what was at the heart of his question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? It was about achieving. It was about accomplishment. It was about doing everything to get the reward. God, but Jesus wanted to say, it's not about the reward. It's about God. It's about how good He is and who He is. And we should not be thinking that this is kind of a, a, a game or a, a, a competition that we win and we lose and we put in all of our efforts because we're focusing in the wrong direction. We're thinking about our response, our lives of obedience. And so Jesus wanted to reframe the question right away. And so when we're thinking about this sharing of the good news, and we're talking about being a engaging with people around us, we must remember that we're not just talking about moral living and good principles of life. We're talking about knowing a good God. And He is holy and He is far above us. He has called everything into creation from His very Word. And the offer in the Gospel is that we would come to know Him. Not that we would look at ourselves and make sure we're doing all the right things to get the reward. We miss the boat if that's what we think this is about. So God, Jesus wanted to rephrase the statement. It wasn't as some of the Mormons say, well, see, God, you know, Jesus wasn't uh, exactly good. Not the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses. He wasn't exactly good like God was good. He's different from God. It wasn't that. It was as a, a human representative, Jesus wanted to say that I am representing the truth. And the truth is that God is good and none of us are on the same plane as Him. We need to be concerned about knowing Him and understanding Him and hearing His revelation of who He is. Not about our performance. But this young man didn't quite learn that yet. But it is important for us that we understand that many of the people we interact with have all kinds of ideas about what God is like and 
what he would expect and how God loves and how God relates to us. But at the heart of our engagement with people is the desire to know God as he's revealed himself. And he has revealed himself in Jesus, in the scriptures. We can't know God by ourselves. We only know God as he's revealed himself to be. And so that's the heart of sharing the gospel. Come to know God. Second, the principle of engagement takes up the idea of self-surrender to Jesus as the core of the message. So Jesus says, only God is good. We must know Him. And then He goes on to pick up on the understanding of the rich young ruler that, you know, you must follow the Ten Commandments. Of course, the rich young ruler had a misunderstanding about those Ten Commandments that many still do today. That God gave us the Ten Commandments to follow, to obey, so that we can perform and then get the inheritance. It was never that, really. If you go back to read in Exodus chapter 20 and read 19 and 20 and you read about what God did in delivering His people Israel out of Egypt and then bringing them to Himself, He established a relationship with them. His grace was poured out on them. He gave a revelation to them of His power of His goodness, of His love for them. And the Ten Commandments were part of His call for them. They weren't a way to make a relationship with God. God had already made a relationship with them. He'd already delivered them. He'd already brought them to Himself. He was already gracious and good to them. And what He wanted was them for them to respond in holiness and obedience and in love. And His, the Ten Commandments were expression of that direction on how to live in a relationship with God, a relationship that God had already initiated, that God had already made possible. But this rich young ruler, like many people in our world, think that these rules, these Ten Commandments were given so that you could get the rewards that God might offer. And so the, relation, the conversation goes on as we read. Jesus really articulates four or five, four or five of the last uh, commandments in the Ten Commandments about what you should do. You should not murder, you should not commit adultery, and so on and so forth. And the man says, all of these things I have kept since I was a boy. Certainly, probably referring back to that moment when he takes on the mantle of the law himself. Maybe at his bar mitzvah when he recognizes his obligation and he feels like in looking at his life that he has been faithful to those things. So why is he asking? Because he senses something different, something lacking. Something missing. And so really, he's coming to Jesus with uh, wanting affirmation that he is on the right road. So Jesus looks at him in verse 21. One thing you lack. But first, 
I don't want to skip the words that I mentioned before. Jesus looked at him and loved him. Then he said, one thing you lack, he said, go sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you will have treasure, and then come follow me. Well, does that sound like one thing? That sounds like three things. <laughs> but it's, it's one thing. Because in essence, the most important thing in that statement is that last statement. Then come follow me. Jesus lays out a path of self-surrender and obedience that is concrete and plain for this man to hear and to respond to. Jesus really always lays out a path of self-surrender and a command for us to follow. We, as believers, when you come to be a disciple of Christ, you give yourself away. You surrender yourself to Jesus. You recognize that you are no longer Lord of your life. He is the Lord of my life. He is the one that I must serve. And there is nothing in my life He cannot touch. Now, one of the big questions for us in looking at this passage is, is this uh, uh, prescriptive? Is this, is this a declaration of what it means to follow Jesus? Does this, is this tailored to this man, or is this something universal? And you might say, well, you know, if you're really going to follow Jesus, you should sell everything you have. Uh, the vow of poverty kind of comes from this text and a couple of others. Sell everything you have, give to the poor, and then come and follow me. I think we can say this is tailored. Because this man had an idol of possessions and wealth. And this man hung on to all of those things with confidence and hope for his life. Jesus was saying, if you're going to come and find eternal life, as I am preaching and proclaiming, at the core of it is complete self-surrender. And this is where you need to surrender. Will you trust me, Jesus? Will you lay down everything you have and follow me, Jesus? This is what Jesus is asking the rich young ruler. It is what He asks of all of us. One of the difficulties is, is sometimes putting our finger on what does it look like to be fully surrendered. What we, and we struggle with that. I struggle with that. Especially as we look at this passage. This passage speaks to us probably as much as any in the world because in essence, on a world scale, we are wealthy. And the danger for us is that we say we have our trust in Jesus and we have our trust in our wealth. We can't avoid what is said in this passage several times. Verse 23 and 24 says it over and over, repeats it. Therefore, if it's repeated, it's a pretty important principle. And then he not only says it and repeats it, he illustrates it. 
You know the passage. Jesus looked around and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words. And why are they amazed? Because usually having wealth and finances, that kind of indicates God's blessing and direction on your life. Uh, Not in this situation. Not always. How hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his word, but Jesus said again, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. And then a picture. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. And, and there have been many illustrations or arguments of that there was... A, 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 an eye of a needle in the in the wall of Jerusalem that uh, camels could skirt through, you know. Uh, all of that is just ridiculous. That's uh, been debunked. It was as clear a a a contrast as one could make. An eye of a needle was like an eye of a needle. Maybe our eyes of the needle may be a little small because I've helped the quilters and try to get that thread through there. That can be pretty small. But maybe they were bigger back then. But still, the contrast is it's an eye of a needle. And it's a camel. It's like a rich person getting into the kingdom is, is as bad as taking a camel through the eye of a needle. Of course, the disciples say, well, then who can get in? Who has any hope? And we look at verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible. What Jesus is saying is that the work of salvation, the promise of eternal life, will not come by your achievement, by your performance. And as we're engaging the world around us, this has to be at the core of what we're saying, what we're communicating. That salvation is not by our performance. We need God, good God, great God, a gracious God who created us and made us to send His Son to be the Deliverer. Because nothing in our ability would warrant eternal salvation, eternal life. It's impossible. And it is only through a miracle of grace. It is only through the work of Jesus and the transaction of God the Father, God the Son on the cross of Calvary and the Holy Spirit applying that transaction to our hearts and lives that eternal life comes. And it is a miracle. It's impossible from our point of view. It is a miracle from God's point of view. And the offer of that salvation comes through our trust and self-surrender to Jesus. That is the core of the Gospel. Lastly, as we look at this text, the third principle of engagement, the life of faith in Jesus changes everything. And, I, and, and it's a little challenging to think about this because I've always been challenged by it. Verse 28 through 31. 
Peter speaks up and says, we've left everything to follow you. This is at the heart of what it means to trust Jesus. Complete self-surrender. Peter gets that. And Jesus affirms that they have done that. And there is an affirmation that everyone who's left home and brothers and sisters, mothers, fathers, feels everything that you have for the gospel will get a hundred times as much. Not in the same kind, but in a new way. As I said, it changes everything. The person who doesn't trust in Jesus will find that everything slips through their fingers, even at the present time. And the person who trusts in Christ and surrenders themselves to Christ as Lord and Savior will find that they have riches more than they can hold in this world and in the world to come with persecution. So we think about this. I think about people who are in this age, who surrender families, they will become part of a greater family in this age and the age to come. It may not, will not be a biological family, but it will be a family nonetheless. Those who have become homeless will find homes amongst brothers and sisters. Those Those who leave fields will find greater fields of mission and gospel work that far surpasses that of any literal field that they may have owned. When we talk about surrendering to Christ, we must know and we must communicate. It changes everything but only in the message of Christ, only in trusting in Christ our Savior and Lord will we have eternal life. So many other things just to remind you of. For each of us, as we think about this great message, we must think about what does it mean it's hard for the rich to get into the kingdom. There is an ongoing trust, an ongoing surrender, which is pictured in in Peter's comment, we have left all to follow you. There was an ongoing surrender and commitment to the life of following Christ. And as as we as believers in our setting, rich according to the world, must think about our response, our continued self-surrender to Jesus. Oh, that Jesus would guide us into greater and greater depths of trust and obedience. We must also think about the true love displayed by Jesus. Jesus, in His love for this man, let Him walk away. He said hard things. Not in a way that was shaming or demeaning, 
But in his invitation, he didn't diminish the importance of that invitation. Come, follow me, and you will have eternal life. So in our love, in our self-surrender, let us be truthful. Let us care enough to tell the truth. That's what we're charged with. Remember, in navigating religious discussions, we must move towards the heart. The essentials are knowing God, He alone is good. Surrender to Jesus, for this is enduring life. And living a life of faith changes everything. Let's make this the good news we share. And let's double down in living this good news. Let's pray together.